Welcome to Talking Nutritionally. I'm Ellie McLean, your host and nutritionist. Through this podcast, I hope to connect you with the answers to your biggest nutrition-related questions. Each week, I interview experts in their field from training to hormone health, fertility, body composition, metabolic health, gut health, and so much more. We cover it all because it all influences you achieving peak health and performance. I hope you enjoy tuning in each week. If you do, please be sure to follow me for more via Instagram at Nutritionally. And please also be aware that this show is not intended to treat or diagnose any health conditions. And if you do need tailored support, please explore more at Nutritionally.com. In today's episode, we welcome long-standing nutrition scientist and one of my very first lecturers, Tim Crow. We discuss the misnomers surrounding nutrition science and what makes nutrition science so complex. Tim explains the difference between dietary patterns and a diet. We assess diet quality, particularly in the context of plant-based nutrition, and he also helps to separate fact from fiction on the specific topics of soy, meat, and dairy. I wanted to ask Tim about these foods in particular because it's reflective of the foods I'm asked about time and time again in clinic. I hope you enjoy learning from one of my very first teachers. Hi, Tim. Um, it's so great to have this conversation with you. Um, I'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit more in, in the chat, but I reached out to you because you're one of my lecturers from back in the day when I was um, studying at Deakin University and um, you came back into, I guess, my field of view a couple of years ago just through your podcast, actually, mm-hmm. and I love what you're doing there. So I thought let's, let's bring some of your knowledge and expertise um, to my audience. Um, but maybe start by just sharing a little bit about your background in nutrition and, um, you know, what brought you to nutrition and what's been happening in the years slash decades since. Well, Ellie, th- thanks very much for the invitation to, to chat with you on, on your podcast today. And also it's, it's always great to connect with a, a former student who's, who's gone out into the world and done other things and it's probably similar for me as well. So it's great to have this out with the passage of time, particularly in a field of nutrition, which is just, it just fascinates me because it's so relevant to everybody. But my background is unashamedly a scientific nerd, and I embrace that. That's, you'll see that in, through all of my messaging. I'm all about the interpreting the science, communicating the science, having evidence behind me, and that's been my career both in medical research and through teaching at Deakin Four for 16 years, mm. uh, mostly in, in clinical nutrition but also public health nutrition areas. But five years ago, I just decided that was a nice phase of my life, but I was much more passionate about the communication side of nutrition. So I bit the bullet and, and, and left and started working as a freelance health and medical writer, science communicator, nutrition scientist, whatever hat I'm wearing on a particular day. And I really enjoy it because I get to do so many different things in this particular field. So that's sort of been my very brief journey of where I am today, but it's always been very much scientific research and you'll, you'll get that today. But also that's been modulated over, over the years as I appreciate there's science research, but also there is what's relevant for an individual and in nutrition that's really important because everybody eats. Everybody's an expert in their own body their own and body. their own food and nutrition. So that, that has to be acknowledged and that's va- um, certainly valid. But also there's the science as well that helps to inform why someone may or may not want to make some dietary changes or my, my, why I may explain some particular conditions that they've got. So that's where I am today. 
Love it. And, you know, one of the reasons I was really drawn to having you on the show is because you are so close to the science and um, it's very easy, I think, for the general population to get further and further away from the science because their exposure to nutrition is the advertising that they see on TV or, uh, you know, the news, so to speak, um, or it's the, um, you know, the the posts they'll see on social media from an influencer who has an absolutely no health background to spruiking their, you know, powder that they live and breathe by yeah. in their morning smoothie and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, coming back to the science will be, is really important for listeners and for, and for listeners to understand that nutrition is a science. Um, you said something, you know, as we were talking before we hit record around the fact that, you know, nutrition can't just all come from the science, but it, so yeah, you can't lean just on science when it comes to nutrition advice, but at the same time, you can't just come from one person's experience when it comes to Completely. nutrition yeah. advice, which is um, very, very true. Um, so it is a complex science because there is the science and then there is the individual and their um, experience with food and nutrition. Um, okay. But from a, a you know, science point of view, what do you think makes it a, a complex science? Well, it, it's a complex science because it's a fairly young science. But, but also, even though it's very much, I'm very much about, you know, the evidence and the current research, it's really hard to do the big high quality studies to get definitive answers. And so here we're talking about randomized controlled trials. You know, you get a 10,000 people and then for half of them, you randomly allocate them to follow a vegan diet for 30 years. The other half follow a meat eating diet for 30 years and then see rates of cancer and heart disease. I mean, good luck get running that trial for more than a month mm. because it's very hard to get people to stick to an assigned diet. And by diet, I don't mean weight loss. I mean any type way of way of eating. Yes. So yeah. for the big questions in nutrition, it's almost impossible to do the, the best quality studies. These are these randomized trials because it's requiring people to make big dietary changes, sometimes not by choice, and, and follow them for years. So we have to use lesser quality research and it's called observational research. So you've got large groups of people and you just observe them and you look at their rates of cancer and heart disease and diabetes and depression. And you try and correlate that with dietary factors all while allowing for other lifestyle factors that can affect it. So many of, of the evidence, much of the evidence we have in nutrition comes from observational research. It's not perfect. There's lots of flaws with it because you have to do these methods to try and work out what someone eats over some decades. Mm. But that, that's the best research we've got at the moment. And when you do that, you'll come up with all sorts of interesting and sometimes spurious associations. That's why the media loves to run with these sorts of stories, because it's possible to come up with a completely conflicting viewpoint just based on one particular study. Mm. So the mm. science is not always the best, but it's the themes that I look at. What, what's the consistent theme or narrative that you see in research? And that's the stuff I go for, not because of what one particular study shows. So that's why it can mm. be confusing because the evidence is not always the best. Combine that with conflict of interest. Now, as soon as you say, I say that people think, oh yes, it's all funded by big dairy or, or big, big meat. It's always, you know, the animal industry. Well, big almond, big avocado, mm. they fund just as much research. And they're all biased in terms of those organizations want to fund research likely to give them a positive finding. Mm. It doesn't mean research is fraudulent. It just means if more money goes into a particular area, asking questions, that's likely to give a positive answer that becomes overrepresented. 
Mm. And even researchers are conflicted. It's We are human beings. It's very hard to do an about-face when you have a very firm viewpoint on a particular dietary ideology when conflicting research comes along. Particularly if you've got books to sell and a, a big social media presence, it's hard to do an about-face. It's painful for us humans to actually say, we're wrong and I'm going to change my viewpoint. We don't like doing that. And it's the same mm. in nutrition. And mm. the final one is that you can have the best quality research. You can have randomized controlled trials and meta-analyses and Cochrane reviews. And yet in all of those studies, there are individuals and food does affect us individually. Clearly we know that. Just purely based upon your gut microbiome, your blood sugar response to an apple will be different to somebody else's as one of the factors related to your gut microbiome. So yes, there's individual responses is true and it's valid, but just because one person has an experience with nutrition doesn't make them an expert. But just because someone also has a Cochrane review behind them doesn't mean they're the expert and right on everything because it only gives a, a bit of a snapshot of what the current research is and that can change over time. Mm. And in the end, it's food, nutrition. The media love the clickbait stories. If a study came out today saying, in one study, it was found that eating fruit and vegetables increase your risk of cancer. I guarantee you that would be a headline story in the news tonight, regardless of the fact that 4,432,000 studies before that showed the opposite. So we like to go for the controversial clickbait um, angle, and that's the stuff that gets feeds and reads in your social media. Well, that's the thing about nutrition, isn't it? It's, it, it is so relevant to everybody and... Yes. Um, people are looking for that that silver bullet that thing that will make them age more slowly or or you know turn back the years of time reduce the wrinkles or extend their life quality or help them lose weight you know as quickly yeah. as they possibly can and so they will be absolutely drawn to those those headlines mm, uh, that you put out it's there. all about that 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 single if you just do this one diet hack just cut out this food. Just add this superfood. This will be your key to cutting your risk of all forms of chronic disease and living a long and healthy life. And that's not quite how it is. It's, it's much more complex than that. You know, there's no simple solution. There's certainly things we can learn about the common themes of what research says. And spoiler alert, eating lots of fruit and vegetables and minimally processed foods is pretty much about 80% of what you need to know about nutrition. <laughs> but that's pretty boring and unsexy. It's not clickbaity. It has to be eat this one superfood or cut out this one toxic food. And that's your solution for all of your health problems. Mm, yeah. I, um, uh, I pass by, um, it must have been last week, he came into my clinic not really know what, not knowing what he was stumbling into and, um, there's a yoga studio in my clinic. So it's actually asking about the yoga schedule. Okay. Um, I said, you know, I'm a nutritionist. Sorry, I'm not here. I don't know about the yoga schedule, uh, but okay. I can check it out online for you. And he said, oh, you're a nutritionist. Well, what's the one thing I should know about my diet then? <laughs> and um, I wasn't taking the bait. I said, uh, the one thing you should know is that nutrition is highly relative and um, I need to learn more yeah. about you before I can tell you the one thing you know, need to know about your nutrition. Um, but that's something that I feel really passionately about is that like, I just want to like squash this, like there is, you know, one thing you need to be doing or one thing we all need to be doing. And yeah, I would, I would say that eating more fruits and vegetables probably does fit into the category of what we could all be doing. But I also love the nitty gritty of um, yes. understanding how your genetics, your, 
your gut microbiome, your lifestyle um, influences how you should be eating and also your goals influence um, how you should be eating. Absolutely. So you've got broad you know, themes or guidelines, but at an individual level, which is the sort of what you do, how do you fit that in with your food preferences, your mm. medical history, your, your day-to-day life, managing a family or a job, all these sorts of things will change the sort of advice and recommendations given for that person within the umbrella of here's a broad principle to work in, but here's some things that will work better for you most likely based upon what we know about you and all of these, all of these factors. So that, that's where it comes down to at an individual level. But taking a step back at a public health level, we can't give that advice. We have to talk broadly about here is a common themes that seems to explain most of the health issues or health benefits from food and nutrition, and they're called the dietary guidelines. They're not rules. They're not laws. You don't have to follow them exactly. They get maligned for all sorts of things, ignoring the fact that only a tiny percentage of people actually follow what the dietary guidelines say, not what people think they say then that, that sort of is our framework we work as nutritionists. But there's a huge amount of variation and how that can be interpreted and how that can be applied to a person. Mm. Um, going back to the, um, the, you know, the things that make nutrition science complex, and you talked about some of those, those variables that can influence it. I'm also really conscious of the influence of food quality. And I wonder if that ever enters, yeah. um, you know, your thought processes in reviewing studies, you know, you know, comparing the, the diet of, let's say, look at, let's say, look at plant-based nutrition, you know, comparing mm-hmm. the diet of often research is done in the U S so comparing the diet of that individual who eats meat, but let's face it, a big proportion of, you know, the West or the, the US population eating meat might be having Domino's pizza and a McDonald's yes, burger right. and, um, you know, some some battery farm chicken in their um, fried chicken um, versus perhaps the more discerning consumer who's looking for sheep off their uncle's farm um, or, you know, uh, free-range eggs, that sort of thing. So... I think there's a lot to be said for, for food quality, which also doesn't often come Absolutely. out in those observational research pieces. No, you're completely correct. So it's, you know, you can get bogged down in talking about nutrients and, you know, saturated fat and salt and things, but you have to take a step back and look at dietary quality, which is why there's been a big shift in research in the recent years to talk about dietary patterns rather than nutrients. And a dietary pattern is a theme. So if I say the word Mediterranean style diet, then there'll be some things to come to mind, fruits, vegetables, grains, um, fish, olive oil, red wine, and so on. That's a dietary pattern. So we look at dietary patterns and you compare them to other dietary patterns, which is not so healthy, which would be a typical Western diet, and you see clear differences. And only recently there was a major review of plant-based diets where it compared what was considered a fairly healthy plant-based diet. So you can use scoring mechanisms to actually work out what a healthy diet is, comparing it to a plant-based diet that's full of highly refined foods. And ready to be shocked, the unhealthy plant-based diet had a higher risk of cardiovascular disease and all sorts of problems. So that's Mm. a good example that dietary quality trumps individual nutrients and foods. And that's what we focus on. And in my communication is about eating minimally processed foods. So the word don't eat processed foods is the most useless bit of advice you could give to anybody because (laughs) everything is processed to an extent, unless you're Mm -hmm. just going to your garden and picking an apple. So I prefer minimally processed where the food is 
very similar in nutrition and looks to how it first started compared to ultra processed foods and just walk into the the snack food aisle of your supermarket there's all the ultra processed foods they don't bear much resemblance to the original food Mm. they've got a lot of additives long list of ingredients and it's these ultra processed foods that are consistently being linked with heart disease cancer um, mental health a shorter lifespan, high risk of type 2 diabetes. But that's just another way of saying that's a dietary pattern that's mm. full of highly processed, processed foods. Compared mm. to a minimally processed diet, you know, again, think mostly plant-based foods, not a lot of added sugar and salt. Well, that sort of diet is consistently linked again to long-term good health. Yeah. So that's why it's really good to talk about these dietary patterns rather than talking about nutrients. I hate talking about saturated fat and salt and so on. Because if you get the foods right, the nutrients take care of themselves yeah Mm. maybe saturated fat and salt is um a topic for another another interview (laughs) because i would love to get into the nitty-gritty of that with you um but minimally processed foods my listeners might be familiar with the acronym that i use a lot which is jerf so just eat real food and Mm -hmm. as a general principle i try and encourage people to if they're buying packaged foods you know, if they look, take, if they're buying something that doesn't quite look the way it was when it came out yes. of the ground or off the tree or from the animal, if that's your choice, um, look for something that has five or fewer ingredients in the packet. Yeah, you know, that's when a, good, a rough and easy guide. Yeah, mm, yeah, something to consider when you're getting beyond five ingredients. When you're seeing numbers, when you're seeing words that you can't pronounce, then there's a good chance that you're, you know, you're diverging away from that. Um, minimally processed food um, sort of um, rule. Um, I want to talk about some nutrition myths. Obviously, you get asked to to write a lot. You know, I'm sure you're contacted by you know the media and various different points of media to communicate on certain topics, and probably have people, you know, just the general public contacting you asking you to talk on topics. Um, I'd love to talk about some top nutrition myths that you really like debunking. That's good. There are some that I commonly get asked about in clinic, which would primarily be soy, dairy, and meat. So we can either look at those. Um, But is there any others outside of that list that you're commonly asked about? Well, there. I've been happy to chat about those, and I'll throw in one or two extras on top of those for the common ones I come across as well. So, mm. um, over to you to, to okay. lead it. Which one do you want to tackle first? Well, let's start with soy. So, um, provide some context. I work with a lot of people in the plant-based space. I also have a program um, which is dedicated to plant-based nutrition called Plant Based Kickstarter, which is all about helping mm. people to understand that yes, um, you know, plant-based nutrition is a is a pattern of eating and we can have really great patterns and we can have really poor patterns within that guise. So I'm really passionate about steering people in the sort of healthier plant-based pattern. Um, but soy is, soy is a product that I personally use um, through the research that I've done on soy. I have absolutely no questions around my clients using all of those that doing my program. Um, yeah. you know, I have no problems with those people using it. Probably the only caveat to that rule is I'd want to know if somebody had um, a thyroid condition um, that, you know, we might need to navigate. 
Um, yeah. But there's still that, there's still a big community that would be fearful of soy potentially for yeah. its um, estrogen mimicking effects or estrogen promoting effects. So maybe just talk on what you've seen in the literature uh, and both sides of it like what, what's the bad side of soy that's that's coming through and what's the good because if you yeah. if you actually open up google and pop in is soy good for me you'll probably get three three re- results saying it's a lifesaver and three results saying you know yeah it'll cause your breasts to very true something like that <laughs> so what's your view so, on it? so okay there is with soy this is a lot of research done in this area and there's just two things. There's what the internet says and what science says. And generally the internet says the opposite to what science says. There are lots of scare campaigns about it. Uh, overall, when you look at the, the, the whole field of research, it is overwhelmingly in favour, if you choose to have soy foods, of having it in your diet. You know, lots of health benefits linked to it. Just minimal or insignificant theoretical risks of having too much of it. So the internet is great for scare campaigns based upon theoretical risks. But when you actually do research on real people, a lot of that does not come to pass. So let's go to a couple of points. Uh, soy and cancer. So clearly there is, there is a, a lower risk of particularly breast cancer with increasing soy consumption. And that's thought to be related to soy contains an, an estrogen in it, but it's different to human estrogen. It actually competes for the estrogen receptor in humans and actually reduces estrogen binding. So it actually lowers your estrogen load. If you look at a woman's lifetime risk of breast cancer, it's related to estrogen exposure. So the risk factors are early menarche, which is the age of um, first menstruation, late menopause, having no children, not breastfeeding. All of those increase a woman's lifetime exposure to estrogen. So it's thought that soy foods can actually blunt some of that estrogen effects. It can also lengthen, on average, the, the length of a woman's menstrual cycle by about one day doesn't sound like a lot, but over a lifetime, that's less estrogen exposure. So that likely explains why we see frequent soy consumers have a lower risk of breast cancer. Disclaimer, most of it is done in Japan where they eat a lot of soy. They don't drink just soy milk. They eat all sorts of soy foods. So it's probably their overall diet and the fermented foods they eat, not just specifically soy foods that we eat in Western society, which is mostly soy milk. So there may Mm. be a difference. So it's pretty clear that uh, it can lower the risk of cancer, potentially even for men, it can slightly lower the risk of prostate cancer. So that's a positive. I'm interested in something you said there, and I probably need to go and look into this, but, you know, one of the concerns around soy with um, thyroid conditions is that the goitrogens might inhibit iodine absorption. Obviously in the Japanese diet, there's lots of seafoods, seaweeds, which would, you know, potentially mean that they have an a higher average iodine intake than a standard yes. Western diet. Is that something that's come out in the literature? So you're very right about the soy and, and thyroid function because it contains things called goitrogens, which in theory can reduce iodine uptake in the thyroid gland and that can affect thyroid consumption. So that's the theory. But the reality is there's been dozens of clinical trials now showing that that high soy consumption and even isoflavone supplements don't change blood markers of thyroid function at all. So there's the theory, but then the reality is it doesn't seem to affect it. So it could be a potential small little thing that someone looks at if a woman has hypothyroidism, but there's no need to cut it all out of someone's diet or blame it for hypothyroidism. The risk is incredibly small and really it's in the, in the realms of theoretical 
because mm. both in women that have hypothyroidism and women that don't have it, soy foods alone don't change blood markers of thyroid, thyroid hormones and all the sorts of tests that the doctors do to assess thyroid hormone function. Mm. Uh, I find people also really love to cherry pick and, and nitpick. So, you know, we, goitrogens, you know, that which is found in soy is also present in other really health promoting foods like broccoli, Completely. for example. And exactly. Uh, so it's all about one, one client stop and ask me if she should be eating broccoli due to the goitrogen content, you know, so we do, we do cherry pick. Yep, absolutely. And I've gone looking and looking and looking for research to show how much broccoli you'd have to eat to have an effect on your thyroid function. And no one has an answer because it's almost impossible to do that sort of research. So it's theoretical. It's like when I talk about someone with iron deficiency, you have all these factors that can affect iron absorption, but for the average person, just ignore them. It's irrelevant. Maybe if you've got iron, iodine, um, iron deficiency, then you start focusing on maybe having vitamin C with plant foods mm-hmm. where you maybe spread out your calcium throughout the day. That can help a little bit. But if you don't, well, eat normally. You don't need to worry about these things. So if you don't have any thyroid issues, eat soy, eat broccoli. Don't worry about gortrogens. If you do have clinical um, presentation of this, or maybe you don't want to go overboard with them just because it's a theoretical risk, but you know, don't get all your advice on the internet of telling you, you, know, you need to cut these foods out, that they're toxic, that everybody needs to avoid them. Mm. That is completely untrue. Soy as far as its hormone effects are generally positive, and that's related to its effect on lowering the risk of cancer. Um, which for a lot of people listening, I'm sure will be um, quite profound because they may have actually stopped consuming soy products because of concerns around breast cancer. Um, so that's a bit of a, a bomb you've just dropped. Um, so I want to ask you about the, the next ingredient that I get often asked about in the clinic, uh, and that is around dairy. Yeah. Um, sometimes similar reasons, but, you know, people have just heard of oh, dairy is not good for you. It does have um, uh, potentially impacts on hormones, um, but I'd be interested in knowing what you've, you've found in the research around dairy, the good, the bad, uh, and the reasons for why. Yeah, so dairy is probably the second food that's a, that's a hot topic issue after soy. Uh, and I've looked at the research for decades, and my overall summary is it's pretty much neutral. If you like milk, drink milk. If you like cheese, eat cheese. Uh, any health effects are way overblown. There's lots of positive benefits for having dairy in your diet if you choose to have it. You don't have to have it. There's not a dairy food group. It's always dairy and alternatives for vegetarians. But if you have it, it's it's a good source of uh, excellent source of protein and other minerals and calcium. Uh, and overall, the weight of evidence says it's fairly it's a fairly neutral food to include in your diet. And in fact, a lot of the claims made about it that it causes inflammation and all these whole, horrible problems, the, the, the truth is it's complete opposite. Overall, dairy is an anti-inflammatory food because of these bioactive compounds that are found in them. So there's a reality of what the research says and what the evidence says. But again, if you don't like it, you don't have to have it. You know, a common argument I hear is that we shouldn't have dairy because humans are the only species that drink milk. Well, that's sort of a bit of a silly argument because humans are the only species that take pictures of their food or, <laughs> you know, flies to the moon with space food. It's sort of an irrelevant argument. But there are species that drink this milk of other animals. There's been feral cats observed in the Galapagos Islands that drink the milk of fur seals, they steal it. Why do they do that? Because they can get away with it. So it's actually not true, that mm. that, that appeal to nature fallacy. 
But again, you don't have to have it. But if you do have it, don't be concerned about all these health concerns. You read about it. Overall, it's a fairly neutral food. It's an enjoyable food. It's part of many cultures. Um, overall, I'm fairly neutral on it, and mm-hmm. you should be as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I come on it from the perspective that, again, it's a very individual. Um, Correct. Like uh, it, it, it's a very individual response to dairy that therefore determines or warrants you know, not having it or having it in the diet. Um, Probably what challenges me most about dairy is this misconception that it is the only source of calcium. And if you embark on a dairy elimination, whether it be short-term or long-term, that, you know, your bones are going to, you know, become brittle in that instant. Um, And that maybe is, I don't know, I'd be interested to know your thoughts on whether in the medical community there's, just been this sort of lesson that uh, dairy is the source of calcium and lack of you know lack of discussion around other sources of calcium in the diet because it's quite abundant you know green leafy vegetables per cup yeah there's plenty of foods that have lots of calcium like tofu tofu set with um calcium set tofu is an excellent source so this comes from obviously that there's there's vested interest that that like to promote dairy as a good food to have for its calcium. And it is an excellent source of calcium, but it's not the be all and end all. There's lots of excellent vegetarian alternatives, but also it's a myopic focus that bone health is only about calcium. Mm. Your exercise activity, particularly weight-bearing exercise in your developing years is just as important, if not more, than, than your dietary calcium. So you know, it's a very complex issue. Dairy is not all about healthy bones. There's other ways you can get that calcium and there's other things you can be doing in your lifestyle that will give you healthy bones. So yes, that is very much overplayed. I completely agree. Um, you can be with a very well-planned diet, you can get plenty of calcium in your diet from plant foods. You don't have to have calcium, which is why I always say it's it's not a dairy food group in the dietary guidelines. It's dairy and alternatives. And the alternatives are clearly there for uh, vegetarians, but industry groups will do what industry groups do. And of course, the dairy industry will promote the benefits of milk. That'd be silly not to, mm-hmm. just like the avocado industry promotes the, the benefits of the healthy fats in it. They all play the same game. Just don't single out dairy when you have other players as well doing exactly the, the same thing mm-hmm. with their food. Yeah. It's marketing. Yeah. yeah. And you can use the research to support your viewpoint. Uh, I don't, I don't, you know, play, play the marketing game. I look at the research um, if you have ethical issues with dairy, don't drink it. But from a nutrition perspective, which is the only approach I come at, it's a fairly neutral food if you choose to include it. But of course, if it gives you stomach problems, guess what? Don't drink it. <laughs> That's it. Have something else. <laughs> yeah, simple consideration. Um, yeah, precisely. Um, just for those listening, some of the other cases where I'd talk to people about a dairy elimination would be uh, acne. Yep. Um, stagnant weight and blood sugar control challenges. I might look at it. Certainly, digestive upset and issues. Yeah, of course, um, yeah. Uh, and congestion. So people find they, no matter what they do, there's congested sinuses. Um, we'll look at a dairy elimination, uh, and also look always look at a rechallenge as well to find mm-hmm. out if if you know 21 days dairy elimination does help with symptom um, resolution. Well, then we re-challenge and see if a small amount can be tolerated on a less frequent basis and therefore they might not have to, you know, continue an entirely yeah. um, dairy-free 
diet. But that's just an example of how people can play around with it for themselves and see, you know, exactly. should I what, what should be having it? Yeah, mm. I'm not going to argue with someone who says, oh, you know, dairy causes me the, these problems. It does. There you go. You've, you, you've got that personal experience. But I look at it from a perspective of the population. Overall, it's fairly neutral. That yeah. doesn't mean that individuals have different experiences. Whereas what you do see is just because some people have some problems, it becomes ban this food from everybody's diet. And I'm completely against that. Whether it's dairy, whether it's grains, whether it's anything, you know, this idea of banning, labeling a food as toxic when most foods, ignoring ultra processed foods, of course, can be included in the diet of anybody if they choose to have it in the context of a fairly healthy, balanced diet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just made me think of a comment that I'll often receive, which is, you know, um, my sister or my sister-in-law or my brother's best friend's son, they did this with their diet and they managed to achieve this outcome. Should I be doing the same thing? And it's, (laughs) I just want people to understand that because we are so individual, like you said, different gut microbiomes, we have different genetics, different medical histories, different goals. You can't just take your brother's best friend's son's, you know, dietary choice and apply it to yours. And there's a saying I have coming from a career scientist that that facts tell, but stories sell. And you've just given the example of the story selling, the anecdote, the the relative, the brother. That is very powerful for us humans to actually hear that and we would like to act upon it. And that will trump what the research story says. You know, mm. it may say the complete opposite. So facts tell, but, but stories sell. And that's why the the Insta influencers and all the fly-by-night nutritionists get such a big following because they're great with the stories, you know. Mm. Cut out these foods and that will cure your diabetes or get rid of your depression or make you lose 30 kilograms because here is some pictures of, of me and this is my I own like experience. That. And that's really, that's really powerful. That's really powerful. We connect with that. It doesn't mean it's true what that person has said. Yeah, yeah. Um. The third one on my little list that I wanted to ask you about was meat. Now talking, I guess, more specifically about red meat. Uh, yeah. And this is me, you know, as somebody who chooses not to eat red meat and, yep. you know, I'm really passionate about helping people who also choose not to eat it and hence mm-hmm. why I have a program called Plant-Based Kickstarter. Um, but from my perspective, it's not necessarily because I believe, you know, all red meat is the cause of cardiovascular disease or that is not my um that is not not my take from the literature but i would love to know what you know whether you get asked a lot about meat and cardiovascular disease or cancers uh and what you know what's coming out in the literature at a populational level absolutely so we talk about cancers first there's really really high level evidence that eating a lot of red meat particularly uh, the processed red meat, so that's going to be you know salamis and bacon and things, raises the risk of colorectal cancer. I mean, the only people that seem to disagree with that are the meat industry and the, the low-carb fanatics. Everybody else is going, yep, it's a pretty strong link. But I'm going to tell you that I eat some red meat in my diet because just having a small amount of red meat doesn't mean that you, you're going to develop cancer. It's in the context of a whole diet. But, but overall, it's one of those things that there is a link there. And increasingly, we're actually seeing a link between red meat and and heart disease. In the past, it was thought because of saturated fat, but that's a bit of a complex story. That the latest thinking is that, that there's nutrients in red meat um, called carnitine and choline, 
which can be metabolized by gut bacteria, and it produces a chemical called TMAO. It stands for trimethyl N-amine, which is certainly linked with vascular disease and heart disease and so on. And that's considered a likely culprit to explain it. And a fun fact that vegetarians have a different gut bacteria makeup, which means they metabolize these nutrients in a different way. And that may explain why they have a lower risk of heart disease. Mm. So that may explain the link between red meat and heart disease. But in the end, it's always in what dietary pattern does it exist? If your meat is coming from meat lovers' pizzas and a couple of beers and chips and ice cream, you will have a higher risk of heart disease if somebody eats a what I consider mostly plant-based diet, but sometimes does have a bit of red meat. Their risk of heart disease and cancer is going to be much different to that first, first person. So it's the dietary pattern is also important, the context the meat's eaten, not just the meat itself. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I don't know how much you've explored uh, gut microbiome um, research or testing, but we we can actually test somebody's gut microbiome and have yeah. a look at that TMAO production, which is something that microba now do either through their mm-hmm. yes. um, B to C test, which is called microba, or their B to C test, which is called metabiome. But through both of those stool analyses, we can see TMA production and and actually get um, TMAO production and actually get really clear on whether or Mm -hmm. not someone's, um, you know, likeliness of red meat interfering with cardiovascular disease is is even a consideration for them. So that's a really good example of of this sort of data that you you can get from either a gut microbiome fingerprint or nutrigenomic fingerprint of actually making some dietary changes based upon the advice. So that's really getting very specific. And that, that's a really nice example there that for an individual, their risk may be lower than other people, in which case that might be as much as a dietary priority. But we're still a long way of going, you know, what, knowing what a healthy gut microbiome is. We're just learning more about particular species that might have a role to play. And we look at those ones. But there's about 8,000 species of bacteria in your gut. We only know much about 50 or 60 of them only because we can culture them and do things with them. So it's incredibly complex. Um, But it's certainly good that we've got this extra data available that we can make use of to individualize nutritional advice to a person. Mm. You're right. It's an incredibly fast-growing space. Um, But I want to put it to you to see if there's any foods that you want to add to this list of, um, you know, those that cause confusion or responsible for a lot of the nutrition myths out there? Well, a couple of my favorites, and this one comes up all the time, that the, the idea of negative calorie foods, you know, eat these <laughs> foods and the negative calories. If only you could just, you know, eat, eat yourself thin. Um, there's no such thing as a negative calorie food. The, the one that gets put up is celery. Yeah, I was going to say. And, and yes, celery is 95% water. And there's about three grams of fiber, but there is a tiny amount of protein and carbohydrate in there, which contributes to energy. So you still will get more energy from that celery than what it costs to digest it. It's a very small number, but it's not a negative number. But why I say that negative calorie foods can help you lose weight is if your mouth is full of celery instead of pies, well, that will probably make a difference. But but the idea of eating yourself thin with these negative calorie foods, it's a complete myth. All food has some you know, gives us some energy, but typically the foods that are negative calorie are, are plant foods. They're high in water, high in fiber. So they're actually, they actually make us feel full. 
And another favourite one is actually fresh versus frozen. I mean, it's great to have mm. fresh produce, but what we consider fresh produce, if you go to the supermarket, is not really fresh. It may have been in storage and transport, but that, that's okay. That's the modern society we have. We've got all this food available to us. But there have been many studies now showing that frozen produce is just as good nutritionally, if not better, than what we consider as fresh, fresh produce that we bought by from a store. It's super convenient. It can be cheaper. And people that have more fresh frozen produce at home, overall eat more fruit and vegetables. They add it to their, their fresh shop as well. So I'm a big fan of having that available because it's convenient and it will increase your consumption of these foods and you don't need to be concerned about its nutritional merits because it's, it's processed and packaged within two days of being picked. So most of the nutrients are locked in Mm. at that stage of frozen. So there's a lot to be said for frozen over fresh. And if you've got, if you like fresh, have fresh, but frozen is a great backup option. I would absolutely agree with that. If, yeah, you're looking at frozen food, which is, you know, frozen and packaged within two days versus that fresh food, which, you know, there'll be apples sitting in the coal supermarket that have been off the tree for months and months before they Correct. land in your yeah. supermarket bag. Uh, and yeah. the same goes for a lot of the food in there. So um, and I, I do get asked that question a bit, you know, is it okay if I have frozen blueberries or is it okay if I have, you know, frozen cauliflower? And um, I'd have to agree I'd much prefer somebody to be eating the frozen stuff than maybe the head of cauliflower that's been in the bottom of their fridge for a week. Completely correct. So if you look at Australians, only 6% of Australians eat the recommended five servings of fruits per day and half of us only eat the recommended two servings of fruit which is why I just don't care to get into arguments about fresh versus frozen, organic versus conventional. We're just not eating enough to start with. So get that yeah. bit right first, then you can debate the merits of one type over another. Overall, every fruit and vegetable item in the produce section is worthy of the title superfood. They're all good for you. Just yeah. pick what you like and eat them. They're Nature all good. superfood. <laughs> um, the other question that gets asked a lot is, should I have it raw or cooked? And, um, you know, my response is often exactly along the lines of what you just said, which is if you're not eating enough of it to begin with, I don't care if it's raw, steamed, roasted, blended, um, in whatever form you need to have it, have it. Uh, Because we know that some nutrients will be lost in the cooking process. Some nutrients will be made more available in the cooking process. Very true. It balances out. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately fiber will be there no matter what. So it will still be there. And generally it's only three nutrients, um, folate, vitamin, and vitamin C you start losing a bit of in the cooking and and storage. Most of the nutrients are unaffected. So overall, uh, I would would say exactly the same thing. If if cooking a food means you're going to eat more of it, if it's a healthy food, well, we'll cook it. Don't worry about any nutrient losses from cooking. Um, Because we don't like the raw food to start with, well, it's irrelevant how much vitamin C is in it if it's just going to sit there and wilt and die in your vegetable crisper. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, precisely. Um, Now, one last question to ask you. I'd just love to get your thoughts on um, the sort of the future of nutrition science. Are there any areas that you're really excited about, any areas that you're doing a lot of work in at the moment that you're keen to share on in the coming months or years? So I think some of the really exciting areas of nutrition, and one of them we've touched on in this interview, that's to do with the gut microbiome. Mm. So the amount we're learning about this area is phenomenal, but the amount we have to learn is, is just, just as big, if not bigger. 
but it seems our gut microbiome, and there's about one and a half kilograms inside us in your gut. It's massive. That's just your gut microbiome, one and a half kilograms mm. of, of bacteria, virus, viruses, and protozoa. Uh, has profound effects on our on our mental health, on our risk of chronic disease, on all sorts of factors. So as we learn more and more about this, this certainly opens the door for giving more individualized food advice for a person based upon their gut microbiome fingerprint. So this is really where one area of true personalized nutrition we'll see more of in the future. And it seems Robert, you're very well ahead of the field with the stuff you're doing, Ali, with your um, with your clients and, and getting your their, their gut microbiome sequenced. As best as I can be, yes. <laughs> um, I work with a lot of individuals with, uh, you know, history of IBS or digestive upset. Yeah. Um, so doing the gut microbiome analysis is, you know, the, the, you know, the obvious option, but I find more and more, you know, encouraging clients with mental health conditions or cardiovascular disease or metabolic conditions you know, trying to gently encourage them to, to look at their gut microbiome and to see how we can, you know, further tailor what they're doing if, if they've got sort of stagnant or resistant cases, um, delving into their gut microbiome to see how we can use that to um, evolve their progress. Yeah. Um, great. Well, we'll have to have you back to talk about the gut microbiome then in more it's detail. It's area. It's, mm. it's just the hottest of hot topics. And what I love about the whole gut microbiome stuff, even though you can tweak it a little bit, it all comes back to nutritional advice of eat more plant foods, high in fiber, eat less highly processed foods. That's it. Well, it all helps us to eat. explain why. It helps us to explain why they're so, health, they're so advantageous, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. That, that's probably one of the reasons why it's an effect on our, on our gut. So. Mm. It gives you a bit more science and a bit more of an interesting topic to talk about with clients rather than the boring old fiber message of the past about making it making you regular. That's hard to get excited about. Yeah. But gut microbiome is certainly fascinating research to talk about to people, but the dietary recommendations it entails overall is what dietary guidelines and dietary pattern advice has preached for a long time. Long time. Mm. So where can the listeners find you, Tim? Where, they, where can they hear more from you? Where can they learn more from you? Um, thanks, Sally. I'm very easy to stalk on social media. I, I have my own podcast called Thinking Nutrition. My website is thinkingnutrition.com.au. So it's very easy to connect with me through my website or check out my podcast. And most of the things we've spoken about today, I've got a whole entire podcast episodes on it to go deep into the science, but also the practicality. So uh, I'd love to connect with your listeners in the future. And thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today, Ellie. Excellent. Well, I'll pop all those links in the show notes. And thank you, Tim, for being here. It's much appreciated. Uh, and yeah, hopefully we'll hear from you again soon. Fantastic. Great to chat. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode. Now, before you move on to the next thing, get a pen and write down one thing that inspired you from this week's show. That one thing you know you need to go away and start doing differently. Please also remember that this show is not intended to diagnose or treat any health conditions. So if you need tailored support and you'd like to do that with me, please head on over to my website, nutritionally.com forward slash work with me, where you can learn what it means to work with me.